Welcome to the Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Our mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. My name is James, and I'm going to be your host today. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, by having the opportunity to do this in uh, multiple forms, I get a chance to talk about training and training transformation. I really want the audience to understand that tech training that we're doing for initial skills for both officer and enlisted is much different than it was when folks listening went through it. You know, we are at a tipping point in modernizing and transforming tech training, and we're really excited about uh, what we're going to do. And I would say it's going to be the biggest transformation of tech training uh, that's ever happened. And so we're really excited about where we're going and and what we're going to do with all the opportunities that are out there to have an effect across the entire Air Force. You know, 48% go through Shepard. And one of the things I'm going to talk about tomorrow is how we're, we're the sonic boom. We're the epicenter for the sonic boom for the Air Force because our graduates go everywhere. So if we get it right, it's a huge benefit to the Air Force. But if we are not where we need to be, we're just slowing down the opportunity for the Air Force to accelerate change so we don't lose. Heck yeah. That is a great opening, sir. Brigadier General Drew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Awesome. We will dive into that uh, later on, but let's let's uh, let's start with an introduction. Tell me about yourself. Tell me a little bit about your career. Anything you want to talk about? Anything you don't want to include? You know, go ahead. You no, know, great. Thank you so much. So, uh, been in the Air Force 28 years, and actually started off as an acquisition officer. Had the opportunity uh, to do that first, and then. Uh, through a little bit of a detour by teaching professional military education at Squadron Officer School. Got to come back in after a career broadening assignment in aircraft maintenance and then stayed there pretty much for the rest of my career, but with a lot of zigs and zags along the way. So I tell folks, you know, if you're looking for a prototypical bio on how to get from point A to point B, mine may not be it, but I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had because I think as I've gotten more opportunities to lead, especially in command positions. I really believe the jobs that I had that were outside of core opened my mind and allowed me to think about things differently uh, than in one particular way. And it really provided me perspective that I found beneficial as I faced a variety of challenges, everything from squadron group and and wings. So I always tell everybody, um, there's no set path to get from wherever you are to where you want to be. Um, there's lots of opportunities out there. Have faith in the system. And, and when given a unique opportunity that you may not think is standard, those are the ones I think in the end will pay you the greatest benefit. Awesome, sir. Uh, could you speak to a time when your acquisitions background helped you as a maintenance officer? Yeah, so as a young acquisition officer, you know, we, lo- we learned the three basic things of cost, schedule, and performance. And I t- really took those fundamental ideas with me uh, into... Uh, aircraft maintenance, where it was a very uh, production-driven enterprise. But as I became a squadron commander, I really looked at, you know, how are we resourced to do the job that we do? And while we're going to produce a sortie every day uh, as needed based on the wing mission that we had, uh, I was really deliberate about thinking about how do we resource and use every dollar we have to not only do what we have to do today, but to ensure we're ready for tomorrow and then innovate 
and develop our people to ensure that they are ready. And so I had the opportunity to do that, I will say most when I was a group commander at home in Air Force Base. Uh, we had a, a pretty generous budget uh, there because we, because the system just never re, recomputed some, um, some fuel costs from a day when it was very expensive to a day it was less expensive. So I had a, I had a couple extra hundred thousand dollars that I used. That's a feature, not a bug, sir. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so we took advantage of that and, and did some really unique developmental opportunities with uh, our team of senior NCOs and officers where we did, uh, you know, we did 360 feedback with them. Um, I sent them to developmental courses at Vandenberg and Harvard. Um, and so I think that was really an interesting opportunity to take advantage of funds to develop in people. And what I saw is when you did that, it really opened their minds and changed their perspective on how they looked at things. And I tell the story uh, when I reflect back on that time where I sent all my chiefs uh, to Harvard for a developmental course on coaching. And one chief was like, I don't want to go. I just don't have time for this. And I pretty much had to tell him, like, you're going. And he came back as the biggest advocate of professional development after that. He had a Harvard sweatshirt, a Harvard mug. It was like he had, like, attended, uh, a, you know, Harvard undergrad. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't know what's good for us, and we have to have a little faith in the system and, and take that leap and really open our minds to something that may be different because for him, he was a very production-minded um, individual. And to go to Harvard for, you know, a one or two week course to talk about about coaching uh, and development really wasn't in his natural wheelhouse. But when he got back, he became probably my biggest advocate for professional development while I was there. And so I really think what it taught me, like I said, going back to my acquisition time, is making sure that every dollar matters and not use it in maybe the traditional ways that you thought you could use it. But think outside the box about what can you do within the space that you have and the time that you're given to really invest in your people, because then they're going to come up with those great ideas and innovations uh, that will take us where we need to be, especially in a resource-constrained environment where the mission's not getting any easier and we have to be more creative about what we do. Couldn't agree more, and you're absolutely speaking our language with that. That's, that's really cool. That was when you were a maintenance group commander. Uh, could you speak to how you continue to invest in your people and continue to see dividends as you started taking on a broader and broader role? No, I would love to talk about that. So uh, I had my first wing command opportunity at Robbins Air Force Base. So as an airbase wing commander, you're supporting a multitude of mission partners. So you don't have a specific mission. You know, you're not generating a sortie um, like like you're doing or uh, or anything like that. You're supporting missions across a wide swath of of diversified partners and multiple match comps. And so when we thought about, okay, how do we provide customer service? Because that's what we were doing uh, across multiple domains. And so we looked to, because we were in Georgia, and so the headquarters for Chick-fil-A is in Georgia. And I'm like, Chick-fil-A is amazing. Everywhere I go to a Chick-fil-A, their service is exactly the same and at an exceptionally high level. And so we did some research, and so they got their customer service training through Ritz-Carlton. And so we found out about these Ritz-Carlton folks and we brought them in and we trained uh, all our customer service folks across all the domains from whether it was the med group, mission support group, civil engineering group, or communications directorate and wing staff agencies. And we brought them in for multiple sessions. We, pent, we spent you know, $20,000, $30,000 to bring them in because we really felt like if Chick-fil-A got it right 
And we all agreed because we had all been to Chick-fil-A and there were very few people I ever heard that had a bad experience at Chick-fil-A. Why don't we use that as an opportunity to teach people something that that industry had really found a way uh, to bring to people in a highly effective um, way every single day. And so we did that. And I think that had a twofold effect. One was we found an industry standard and it wasn't something within the Air Force because sometimes you know, people out in the private sector have really invested into considering what is the best of breed out there. And then two, people felt invested into what we were doing because they're like, you mean you're going to spend time where I'm going to get training? And some of these folks, they were NAF employees you know, that worked at lodging, that worked at some of our food service areas that we really did not invest in any training. They were coming in, doing their job every day, and doing uh, you know, as well as they could, but really with no investment, but yet having a expectation of high service. I always say in our lodging facilities, you know, we expect the Ritz-Carlton experience, uh, but, we, but we develop to the Motel 6 environment. And so if we wanted that experience that for people to have, we had to go above and beyond. And so we took, we took some money. We actually used squadron innovation funds, whereas, you know, sometimes you're a little prescribed on what you do where you give every squadron so much money and you let them experiment. But sometimes not every squadron is ready for that innovative moment. And so you can't force it. And so we used a good, good portion of that money uh, where some squadrons weren't as ready to be innovative and, and put it towards that. And I, I, that was a, a tipping point for me to really consider on how to use uh, squadron innovation funds to do things differently. And that carried to my assignment here at Shepherd, where we didn't have Wi-Fi at Shepherd. So the only, there's only three technical colleges in the state of Texas that don't have Wi-Fi. Shepherd, Goodfellow, Lackland. And so happily by the end of March, Shepherd Air Force Base will have Wi-Fi, commercial Wi-Fi in all its classrooms and student dormitories, which is a, a big deal. Uh, because Wi-Fi right now is a utility. It's on Maslow's hierarchy. Food, shelter, Wi-Fi. You're not gonna move into your home without Wi-Fi. You probably get Wi-Fi before you get garbage service or, uh, or your electrical uh, hooked up. And so what we did is we took every cent of Squadron Innovation Funds last year and we put it towards Wi-Fi because it wasn't a funded requirement. And the only way that I could leverage my boss and AETC to give me more money is if I started something that we needed to finish. And so we spent you know, about $600,000 of our money as much as we could uh, cull together to, to do that. And I got the remaining uh, $6.5 million for my boss. And at first, uh, Air Education Training Command was a little consternated about that because that wasn't the solution, that the enterprise solution. We were working towards something else within AETC. Uh, and then, you know, as, as was happening, other senior leaders took notice, especially the Undersecretary of the Air Force, and now uh, by other people, uh, I think, finding that an acceptable solution. Now that became the standard that AETC wanted to follow across the command and beyond. And so we're really excited first that we're introducing a foundational capability that will allow us to transform technical training, because I think without that, you can't do the basic things that you need to do, which is to introduce tablets that can be used not only in the classroom, but the extension um, in the dormitory, which we think is an extension of the classroom, and then build upon all the learning that, that can be done with the technology that we see on the floor today, whether it's um, augmented reality or someday probably artificial intelligence. But if you don't have the basic foundational capability, which has been in society, for many years right now than we were hindering ourselves. And so I think that's where we uh, found some opportunity to do some creative and innovative things with the money that we had, but rethink how we could use it and push the boundaries a little bit. So we talk about taking risk all the time. 
So I took a little risk and said, hey, I'm going to use money to bring in Ritz-Carlton, which was never really on the docket for squadron innovation funds. It was to give 20000 to this squadron, 20000 to that squadron, and let's see what they do, and let's hope we can sustain it once they do it, which sometimes we don't have the opportunity uh, to do as ably. Or, you know, just clearing the bank account and, and going all in on a commercial Wi-Fi solution and then using that as, as, um, as leverage, quite honestly, to uh, encourage folks to give us the rest of the money to do it. And, and so that's what I encourage my team to do is you've got to think outside the box. You've got to take risk, which I don't think we take enough of uh, across multiple enterprises. We talk about taking risk. We talk about accelerating change, which I think we need to hear, especially from our senior leaders. Um, but we need to act upon that opportunity uh, to take that risk. And sometimes we just need a little nudge every now and again to get to there. Sure. So the, the creativity that you just laid out you know, a significant part of your career, implementing multiple broad programs, bringing together swaths of people that are unaccounted for in the current system, from your, your customer service folks through the tech school trainees at Shepard, who for as long as the Air Force has been a thing, they've gone to the same hangar, gone and worked on the same, you know, spare parts that got broken and sent there, and they do the same performance checks in the same way, death by PowerPoint. The creativity that you've brought in helping those people is truly inspirational. Uh, I also appreciate that you helped me segue into uh, <laughs> in, into the current. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about what you currently do. What was your vision when you took the job as the training wing, 82nd training wing commander? So I was really fortunate because in my previous job, I was the director of staff at AFMC. And at the time, the AFMC commander, General Brunch, brought me in. He said, what do you want to do? Which I think is a really important question that we have to ask our folks sometimes because even though there are assignments that need to be filled, he was a big believer in saying, if I ask someone what they want and we can make it happen, just think of the ability and things they will do if they're in a job they're really passionate about. So I'm really passionate about education and training. I was, you know, because of that, that sidetrack I took that really changed the trajectory of my career when I was a squadron officer school instructor uh, down at Maxwell when I was a young captain. And so when I got to Shepherd, um, I hadn't been there uh, in a while. Certainly I'd gone back, um, you know, once a year for the last few years to do graduations and things like that, but I hadn't paid attention to where were we in the development of tech training. And what I found when I got back was nothing had changed from when I was there in 1998 as a student. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. This has been a long time. And then the first thing, the reality goes back to the point I made earlier about Wi-Fi. I'm like, what do you mean we don't have Wi-Fi? And where we were considering putting it in the classrooms, we were really reticent about putting it in student dorms. We were actually having our airmen in training, just graduating BMT, and they were going to be there for a few months in training, pay for commercial Wi-Fi in their dorm room. No college campus in America does that because you wouldn't go to that college campus. It's baked into the cost of doing business within the educational uh, enterprise. If I may, sir, add in there for those that don't know, that usually requires airmen that just got out of BMT, E2, E3, losing a deposit because they pay for six months of service and they break that contract after eight, ten weeks. Uh, so you're also, <laughs> there's that piece, which is not insignificant when you're talking about the force feeling appreciated. And, and I know. think that's a great point to bring up. I mean, unintended consequences uh, by doing what we've always done which no one asked, like, why are we doing this? You know, the most financially strapped of our demographic, we're going to have them pay 50 bucks a month for Wi-Fi. Um, and so that was the first thing. And I'm like, okay. And that became, uh, you know, a really big deal. The second thing that we saw when we were down there 
we have about 5,000 airmen in training at any given time uh, at Shepherd. And when I got there, a little over 500 had graduated and they hadn't left. They were just waiting to leave. And I'm like, what are they doing? And so we were giving them details and probably some things that weren't that productive for their development. And some had actually stayed there after graduation longer than they had been in tech school. So if you consider a three-month tech school, and they're still there at month seven because our processes were inefficient in managing them post-graduation to get them all the things they need to head off to their first assignment, everything from an assignment to orders, and then dealing with some of those things that you have to deal with you know, maybe there's an EFMP issue. Maybe you need PRP. And all those things were, were just not baked into a standard, repeatable process. And so when I got there, in addition to Wi-Fi, students out of training became our number one priority. Uh, and so we had over 500 out. And it was a significant emotional event. I had people tell me in the wing that had been there for a while, we need SOTs, students out of training, to maintain the base because we had put them out to do additional duties. Or that's just the way it always is. It's no big deal. I mean, we had enough SOTs. We could put them in the base theater. I mean, 500 is like a squadron of humans that were just attriting with all the knowledge that we had invested in them up to that point when they went there uh, for tech school. And so we worked really hard. Uh, we hit a lot of roadblocks along the way, but found a, a lot of uh, efficiencies that now I'm proud to say that more often than not, every, every day there's less than 100 students that are out of training, that have graduated. And our goal is to get them out within 24 hours from the time you graduate. Because when I was a student at the Aircraft Maintenance Officer course, I graduated at lunch, had a luncheon, got my certificate, got in my car, and drove back to my base. And so why couldn't this be the reality for everybody? And I think we just weren't as focused on that because, again, it had been the way we had always done it. And everybody said, well, what's the big deal? Even though everybody agreed when you started talking to them, educationally, and from a training perspective, this is bad. But yet they, we could not make the cognitive reconnection to say, but then what are we going to do about it? And so we worked on that uh, quite a bit. And then, you know, we've been working really hard across multiple pipelines, some that had started innovations before I'd gotten there in the crew chief pipeline to introduce tablets and uh, augmented and virtual reality uh, in, in there. And then in our officer schoolhouse, the Air Force Logistics Officer School, to go to competency-based training. Uh, where now you're just not sitting in there and have an instructor, you know, uh, speak at you for six hours a day, and then you take a progress check after every section and then another test. Now the students are engaged in the learning by them teaching some of the lessons, uh, small group discussions, so it's a much more enriching and educational environment uh, than we, what we had before. We're getting a lot of positive feedback on it as we've rewritten the vast majority of those courses, and now we're taking that into the enlisted skills side. Uh, but we have over 1,000 courses. And so this is going to take a second. And, and even though you can change a lot of things without money, sometimes you need a little money just to change the atmosphere of the classroom. So a lot of our classrooms, I will say, have this penitentiary look. It's this bare white wall with pictures from aircraft of the 80s, which I know we still have today, but the pictures were literally you know, put up there in the 80s. And so the atmosphere of the classroom did not present itself like, like we, are, we are the most powerful and most well-respected Air Force in the world. I would always say that the commercial that they saw that drew them into the Air Force, that has to carry through what they're experiencing in the Air Force. If not, we are not selling ourselves uh, as where we need to be and what we need to do to win in the future. And so every single day we're trying to catch up with the commercial. Uh, because once again, 48% of the Air Force that graduates BMT comes through Shepard. If we get it right at Shepard, we get it right for the Air Force. If not, 
we're adding layers of work and consternation to those first duty stations and those supervisors if we don't get them to where they need to be. So I'm very hopeful for the future. We're making a lot of change. Um, uh, I'm a little upset about leaving only because I'm such passion, very passionate about the job, but excited for uh, Brigadier General Dietrich, who's coming in from USAFE-A4 to, uh, to, to uh, take command at, at the end of June. Um, but we're really excited about what's going on uh, at Team Shepherd. We have a lot, of, a lot of things going on, and I think we're at a tipping point. And I think once we build more momentum, we're really going to have an opportunity to do more. You know, one of the things we weren't doing we weren't doing any really minimal faculty development. And so we just started over the last two quarters to do faculty down days. And so a, a, a holistic training consortium across um, the wing where now faculty and staff get enriched training um, on that particular day. And then our airmen in training, they're actually in training that day, not in technical school subjects, but they're getting life skills training. So... We're talking about conflict resolution. We're talking about budgeting. We're talking about emotional intelligence. All these things we're finding as people come in that they may not have those skills, not only because of the age that they're coming in, meaning the, the time in their life, but also with technology having been introduced, I think it's removed some of the resiliency and some of the life skill development that maybe we saw a few decades ago where that was uh, just more present in society than it is uh, today. So we've got a lot going on. And I, I'm excited, you know, tomorrow morning I get to talk about this more in depth um, on the main stage uh, here at LOA. Um, but I think what we do at Shepherd is really important. I think for a long time we've kind of been in a dormant stage, and we have not banged on our high chair loud enough to get the resources we need. And I think our customer in the field needed to be more demanding of us so that we provided them a better product so they're not having to do a lot of redo uh, when they get out there. One of the biggest feedback items we get if someone shows up to their base and they're starting to work on the aircraft they're assigned, in particular in the aircraft maintenance field, and they're like, this is not the, the age of the aircraft, this is not the, the model, this is not the mod that, that I saw when I was in tech school. And, and so we're working on very old training systems and platforms at Shepard, and so it was causing more work, I think, to be done that needs to be done at the gaining unit. And so we're taking that feedback seriously, and that's why we've shut off some legacy acquisition programs to get hard trainers in the system, and we're going to more uh, nimble technology solutions with virtual reality and augmented reality, where that's not 100% of the solution, but I think it provides us opportunities now where if you build curriculum in that, in, in that space, you can practice the task 50 times, 100 times, and now you can take it back to your dorm room because you have the, you know, Wi-Fi there to be able to do it. So in our crew chief course, uh, it's our largest pipeline, 800 students. 16 students start a day in that course. And we have two beta test class right now that have been given ARVR headsets. And so they take that back, 60% of their curriculum's in there, and really looking forward to the data we're going to acquire from seeing how does their learning advance, how does their confidence increase now that they're going to be able to practice all these tasks before they get to that point where they actually do it and they still will on the hard trainer. Um, and so we're really excited uh, at what's happening. We just need to find ways to accelerate a little quicker. And so uh, the ATC commander has gone all in and he's pivoting towards tech training. Over the next two years, we're going to, in Second Air Force, we're going to get a little over $100 million to do a lot of the things I've talked about across the five wings that we've had. And so what we have to show is now that we have a concerted effort and a plan with data to back up that the things that we want to do are actually producing results that are beneficial 
to our airmen in training and to uh, the operational customer that we have in the field. It's a great answer. You're making my job very easy, sir, to be frank. You've run- <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm going on and on, and I'm very passionate about <laughs> oh, this. Oh, no, no. I so, can talk for hours on this thing, so I don't want to cut you off from any questions oh, no. that you have. You're doing great. All, all three of us here in this room are crew chiefs, actually. Uh, and I actually was a SOT in 362, uh, almost bumping into when you took the job, which is kind of funny. So uh, I believe December twenty or December 2020 through about April 2021, I was there. F-35 crew chief, so I was yeah. waiting to get shipped, shipped off to Eglin. But I, I relate so much to so many things that you said, uh, especially I remember walking into that old hangar going up the stairs uh, and then, you know, kind of marching up the stairs and walking to that classroom. And it was stale. uh, And it was the beginning of a long sequence of death by PowerPoint. You know, you study, you cram about this for three hours, you take a PC, you cram again for three hours, you take a PC, you go home, and you mostly just kind of dump what you learned because it's a a sequence of acronyms on an airframe that as an F-35 crew chief, I was never going to touch. So very glad that someone is looking at this and someone is being creative about solutions uh, and, and making a tangible effect there. I would like to uh, dig a little bit more into the details of where you see the VR uh, slash AR. Uh, where does that fit into the curriculum? So is that like you, you mentioned that students have Wi-Fi in the dorm so they can bring the stuff, the tablets, maybe the headsets back and work in their rooms. Is there a in-classroom component of these like instructor-led sessions. Could you speak more to these? Absolutely. So I will say the crew chief course is the one that's the most uh, advanced in the use of AR, VR right now because that started about two or three years ago uh, with the support of DET-23 that was under AETC A9 that's now under 2nd Air Force. So they've really been the test bed and the incubator for using AR, VR within, I'll say, the aircraft maintenance initial skills course. So today, you know, every crew chief that comes in as of November of 22 gets a tablet. So all the material now has been digitized and, and provided uh, to them on there. And these first two classes um, are, you know, have the ARVR headsets that they take back with them with about 60% of their content loaded on it. So what now happens for those two classes on a typical day? They come in, uh, the instructor goes over the lesson objectives for the day, and since all the content now is loaded on the tablet, and there's about 60% of it available for training in practical application in the ARVR space, um, they allow the students to choose. So some are more comfortable with the tablet kind of going through the scenario, listening to the lecture, like a, like a, a YouTube video-esque type way, and others are more comfortable, you know, entering the VR space and doing that. And so we just had a Major General Evanson, our second Air Force commander, visit. We gave her a demonstration within a fundamental crew chief's class where the lesson was going to be on the fuel system, and so uh, he gave the, the foundational lecture uh, for that, and then half the class stayed in the class, and they, they were working on their tablets, listening to uh, a, a lecture and snippets of video that they've included in the curriculum, and the other half went out into the hangar, spread themselves apart, went into the VR space, and so you see these, you know, about, I don't know, like 12 airmen just like hands are all over the place, and they're doing, and they're all, they're in their own little world, and they're learning at their pace, um, repeating the task as many times as they want, making mistakes in a very safe environment uh, before they, they regroup, they talk about what they've learned, uh, and then, then the instructor still does, as I fast forward uh, later in that particular lesson, to show them hands-on what they need to do, and then as needed, the task they need to demonstrate uh, to show that they've got the competency to do what they do. But everything in between that, to go to your point, where before it was lecture, 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 go home, maybe take a PC if that was required in the day, 
and then do that enough to get you through the material. And then next thing you know, instructor shows you, you're all lined up and you all kind of wander on up and you kind of do your task and then hopefully you got it. If not, maybe you get to do it again. Uh, but now I think with ARVR, it gives us reps and sets that we were unable to have because we just don't have the number of trainers to accommodate you know, 16-person classes on two shifts with a schoolhouse of 800 students. And so this has introduced a way to scale training in a different way, not removing. And I think a lot of people get uh, a little, you know, consternated about, okay, you're not going to do hands-on training anymore. That's not good. No, we are going to do hands-on training. But left of bang, we are going to do a ton of AR, VR, or tablet learning that was unavailable before. I mean, when folks used to get to Shepherd, and you all probably realize this, you'd get a three-ring binder, and that's your thing, and you would say, hey, and don't write in it because I need to give it to the next class because we just didn't even have the, the foresight to say maybe we need to like, let them write in their notebook or, their, or their, their material that we gave them. And so now they can take this home with them. They can do all those things that you do you know, with a PDF file and, and on a tablet to highlight, to, to learn. And actually, you know, one of our teammates out there from the crew chief um, – training pipeline, he has come up with this idea in which he's taken the concept from chat GPT and, and essentially taken all the crew chief fundamental material, put it out there, connected it to this AI piece. And so now someone can ask a question. Maybe they didn't quite get it by seeing what was on the tablet or in the AR space. And hey, I need to know more about how a prop works. And so it does its AI thing and it re, rewrites it from what the curriculum speaks to uh, specifically. And then let's say someone has never touched, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, kind of technical skilled labor type stuff. They didn't grow up with any tools in their hand. Maybe they grew up uh, somewhere that where that wasn't available. And now I, they sh just showed me this yesterday. They said, explain it to me like I was a child. And it goes to this most fundamental understanding of how a prop works. And so at any level, you can now get this. It's like, uh, it's like cliff notes on steroids. You know, where in my day, if you wanted to read the book and get more understanding, you, you, you get the cliff notes. Now you can type in whatever question you want. And, and he just showed me this for the first time uh, yesterday as he's been working on it personally, just because it's a passion of his to be able to work in that space. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity yet out there that we can include. You know, it's an app on their phone now, and if they don't know anything, if they don't know as much about a lesson as they need to, they can now have a resource available to them. Uh, in addition to the instructor, where they go back to uh, their room. And I really think in the future we have to look at the model of does a student need to be in the class for eight hours a day in front of an instructor? I don't think they, they'll need to. I think they could come in for a little bit, get reset, talk about what they've learned before, maybe do that tactile learning, depending on where they are in the lesson. But I think we send them back out to the dormitory or other learning spaces on the installation where they can do their own self-paced learning, and then come back in. And that's just going to change the whole pricing within AETC and cause a lot of, you know, uh, cause a big uh, uh, kerfuffle out there for it. But we're excited about where training could go. And then do you need to graduate a class of 16 together? Or could some accelerate past because they've got it further? Or do they need to wait as everybody moves as an amoeba through the system versus getting folks to their first operational assignment even quicker? And so we're really looking at that, but that changes the whole paradigm of what we've done, I will say, for decades since the very beginning of when tech training was created. So a lot of stuff going on uh, and a lot of opportunity out there to be explored. You've truly flipped 
you mentioned it, but you flipped the paradigm on its head uh, in that you, you've approached this problem from the perspective that 17 year old, 16, 17, 18 year old kids are joining the Air Force and you know, choosing to become maintainers because they think it's interesting, because they want to do it. And what you're saying is that you want to enable them to explore the space on their own and to continuously have an experience that reflects the things they hoped it was going to be. What's your end game with that? Well, I think what we need to do is, I, you know, even though we're, we have a slight dip in recruiting right now, uh, and I think we're going to catch up and it's going to be fine. But what we have to do is maintain the promise of what we're saying that life in the Air Force, service to the Air Force, is going to be. And, you know, I remember the chief of staff of the Air Force visited Shepard not too long ago. And, and I told him, direct, I said, Chief, I said, we've got to change the commercial. I said, not everyone is going to be an F-35 pilot or a special tactics officer. And you're going to have plenty of folks lined up out the door to be a pilot or a special tactics officer. Those are unique fields and very exciting and, and needed um, professions that we need to uh, attract. But the, where, where we're going to run short of folks is in the skilled labor area, everything from the HVAC technician to the crew chief to the avionics to the weapons loader. And I said, we really need to gauge that. And then when we do that, the commercial has to match what they're going to experience when they come in. So the, the good news is right now that uh, trainees that enter our Air Force and go through BMT, they get a CAC-enabled iPad when they go through BMT. The bad news is we take it out of their hand when they graduate BMT and they go to one of our tech schools, where some now they'll get a tablet, but not all of them. And I will say less than half of them are going to get a tablet. So we regress them. So our training device is still the three-ring binder. They're digital natives. You know, of a few years ago, these are folks that grew, grew up from day one as they could handle a device, had a device in their hand. They had, they had tablets within their high schools. They didn't have book bags. And then we have taken them back down, and they're probably wondering, like, what, you know, we're the most powerful and well-respected Air Force in the world, most technologically advanced, and yet I got a three-ring binder, and I'm still in a room that looks like, I don't know what, like something that from detention hall. And, and what are we doing? And so we owe them better, especially considering we're in a, an environment now where we have a pacing challenge uh, that is accelerating their spending and their investment in defense. Their economy is going to hit parity with us now, they say, by 2036. And so if we don't change what we're doing, we're going to lose the opportunity to attract the talent we need to come in and then to keep pace with those that we're going to have to deter and defeat as needed. And if we don't start at left of that operational assignment, it'll be more difficult to keep that change moving throughout their career. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity out there. I mean, the, the chief got it absolutely right when he came in. He's like, we have to accelerate change so we don't lose. But we sometimes get in our own way in the rules we make and the, and the risk we won't assume. I always tell my folks, I'm like, look, we're in the training environment. We can take a lot of risk here. We shape the day that, the way that we want. I said, I want you to run with scissors over your head. But you got to run with scissors sometimes, and, and you got to try some things. Um, and I think people just, you know, you, you have to show them when failure happens that it's not the end of the world and that we learn something from it. We have failed in some of the things that we've done, and that's been okay, but we just get back uh, and we try it again. Uh, but if we don't do this, I think the cost of not doing it is more. 
in the opportunity that we will have to lose, and I think losing is not an option. The American public expect us to win. We've been Super Bowl champs since 1947. Our competitor is going to be more challenging, and so they're looking at ways to get after our weak spots, but that means we have to be more creative, innovative, and committed to ensuring that that doesn't happen. That climate of innovation that you've been working hard to instill, it sounds like since before you were even a group commander, but uh, certainly more relevant uh, now than ever. Some of that comes from the top, right? Some of that comes from your vision and your time in the seat. Uh, but some of that comes from the culture of the workplace. You mentioned that you were doing some professional development for faculty. Could you speak more to how you're trying to keep your momentum going past when you leave the seat through working with the people that will still be there when you leave? No, I think that's a great point because what you don't want to have happen is this be personality-based. You want to be you want to get it embedded in the organization so that there's opportunity for it to continue to grow regardless of who, who's in charge uh, of the organization. So our faculty development team is really creative. They're really committed. When they were given the opportunity to do this, they went all in. And really the things that we're trying to teach folks, and we've got almost, you know, we've got almost 1,400 instructors in the 82nd training wing, and they touch not only all the folks uh, at Shepherd proper, we have you know, squadrons that are geographically dislocated, and then 48 detachments around the world that do training at the multitude of bases that we have uh, aircraft and ICBMs at. And so uh, it took a while. You know, we did an all-call at, at the first faculty development. It had them all in the room, and we were talking about this change, and I got, some, I got some side eyes in there. Some folks are like, we don't need to change. You know, this worked for me, uh, and, and I get it. Um, it did work for them, but that's not where we are today. And I think we owe them better. And so you have to be persistent, you have to be consistent, and you have to be unrelenting. And I think what we find over time is, is once we show them the benefit of what we're doing by resourcing them to what we need to do, but also talking to them that they have a lot of control of this. You know, you can transition to competency-based training without spending a dime. Move all the tables out of your, out of your deal, get rid of the podium, put, do circles of, of seating. You know, a lot of this is not resource base. It's how much do you want to rethink how you do your job? And it's uncomfortable because now you're not transmitting information six hours a day. You're not the sage on the stage or the guide on the side. And for some people, that's not how they learned and that's not who they've been. And so we are working really hard to break down some of those barriers. And so this year, what we've used the majority of our squadron innovation funds for is we did a 10 for 10 challenge. I said, I'm going to give 10 instructors $10,000 when you have a great idea on how to reshape your classroom. And so we got 32 submissions that equaled about $290,000. And I awarded it to them all. And it went everything from $8,000 to $25,000. And are all solutions perfect? Are they all the same? I think they're just, but sometimes you have to do something to incentivize and show the opportunity for it. And while we have thousands of classrooms, you know, 32 of them will look different than they did the day before. And maybe their peer will now say, hey, maybe I want to do that to my room. And some of it's aesthetics and some of it is technology, but it's to change the mindset of where we were to where we're going to be. Because I think for so long we got stuck in just doing it the way it was, and then no one really critiqued us on it. And that voice was not loud enough to cause us to make a change. And I think, you know, before people come banging on the gate at Shepherd telling us to change, we owe them a product that we know ourselves based on what the private sector is doing and where technology has taken the generation that is coming in today on how to do it better.
the solutions and the costs that you've been quoting are very small drops in the bucket when you're talking about enterprise-wide effects. Uh, that's awesome. And that's awesome that you hosted your own competition. It's awesome that you're putting power in the hands of the people. Uh, so we've talked now about the tech school students themselves. Uh, we've talked about the faculty. We've talked about the classroom experience, the kind of base experience. Uh, the last thing that is a, at least, oh, and we talked about the curriculum development a little bit. The last significant part, uh, well, maybe not the last part, the last part that I'm tracking uh, is your field training detachments. Right. So how are you, uh, how are you changing the flow of that? How are you, how are you changing the vision for the FTDs? Yeah, just so just for the listeners, the field training detachments are an extension of what we do at tech school. So they get their initial skills training at Shepard or one of our geographically separated squadrons. And then they hit their first base, but they still need additional training. So we have cadres of everything from 15 to 50 folks, depending on the size of the base and the mission that they have to support within aircraft maintenance and then the ICBM uh, detachments uh, that are out there. And so what we're also trying to do is, and which is difficult, is now to put that change mindset into 48 different locations that have bases all around the world. And some have been great, um, and they've partnered with their maintenance groups in particular to introduce some VR, and so they have some VR laboratories in some places. Um, but we, what we haven't done, I will say this is the area for mo the most growth, is to really how do you grab all that together by working with your partner host wing on how to elevate that training. And so we've done, I will say, drops in a bucket across the FTDs, more so on, on Shepherd proper than in our, but there's so much opportunity there, and I think that's the next extension. So if they get the you know, the CAC-enabled iPad at, at BMT, and now they get the, the tablet and AR, VR at Shepard. Now that has to, the, the tsunami must continue into the wing that they're coming. And where we have control and a lot of influence is within the FTDs. And so um, they get some budgetary support from their group and wing that they're the host of where they're at, but also we try to provide some. And so that's really, I think, the wicked problem that we need to take a look at next is how do we accelerate that? Because they do a tremendous job doing the, the training that they have responsibility for, but I think they need more resourcing out there to do it. And so, you know, one ARVR lab and one out of five or 10 detachments really isn't going to make the change uh, that we need to do. And then we'll create the problem that that we found coming out of BMT where, hey, you took my CAC-enabled iPad out of my hand and now you, I've got nothing. And now they're going to have this at Shepard over the next several years as we advance it. Then they get to their base and they're like, whoa, I don't like I just went back again I took another step back and so it's a constant progress um, and evolution as we work on this so I think that's an opportunity for growth that we have to have we've been spending a vast majority of our time on Shepherd proper and we've seen some um, some results at some of our detachments but I would say most of them are a traditional training environment uh, as we try to get uh, you know them on board with that and it's not because they're reluctant I think it's just how do you deal with an organization that is entirely geographically distributed? And so that just makes it harder to do the coordination and collaboration. But not impossible. I think it's just going to take us a little more time as we build energy behind what we're doing here, because that'll force the issue, I think, a little bit more as we uh, push our graduates to the field and they take the training that we provide them at their uh, first duty station. Not impossible. Some would have said it was impossible to get Wi-Fi in the dorms, oh, yeah. but <laughs> you've set the bar high, sir. Um, okay, we can uh, move on to a couple miscellaneous questions before sure. we wrap up. What is the best part about being a installation commander? 
Well, yeah, I've, this is the second time I've got to do it in two different environments. One was at Robbins Air Force Base where um, you have 54 mission partners on the base to include one of our three air logistics centers, the headquarters for Air Force Reserve Command, about, you know, thousands of folks from LCMC and DLA and a whole host of other smaller missions there. And so I think what it's really cool about being an installation commander is you're essentially the base mayor. And you get to learn a lot about what goes on in the Air Force because of all the diverse missions that are out there and really try to figure out how to manage resources effectively. Because you can't give everything to everybody all the time. And so you've got to find a balance of how you support um, how you support folks. So that taught me a lot about resource management and about how to engage with mission partners that you are not in charge of, but you provide support over. And, and where do you do the push and pull every single day uh, on supporting those to ensure they get their mission to visit. Your job is to be your proud projection platform. You need to make sure all those missions are as capable as they can be uh, to do what they need to do for all the basic functions that you provide in an air-based wing. But then flip the script and then I get to Shepard and there's only two mission partners. Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training that trains a little over 200 pilots a year in the NATO Alliance in the United States. And then an NCO Academy. And so, wow, much easier problem set. So really what, what I'm trying to do now as an installation commander is, you know, we have 5,000 airmen along with 200 NGEP students at any given time, plus, you know, 200 students in NCOA that come in about five or six times a year. And so we have a, we're running a small college campus. Uh, we'll call it a, a technical college, uh, flying training, and a leadership, uh, you know, development course out there. But I will say the base really looks like any other base that you go on. It does not feel like you're doing that there. 5,000 airmen that have freedom of maneuver. There's no other place in the Air Force that have that many airmen with freedom of maneuver. United States Air Force Academy has 4,000, but they're in a college-like environment there uh, at a different level of development. BMT has more airmen there, but they're, I call it in Thunderdome. You know, seven and a half weeks, they're locked down, learning how to be you know, a citizen in America to an airman in our Air Force. And so we have airmen that are got freedom of maneuver, and I think we need to reshape that environment. And I think it's the installation commander's responsibility to think, how do you reshape Shepard to look like, and some people don't like when I liken it to a college campus, but it is. You know, we need more opportunities for them to have gathering spots. You know, we have an airmen's club, which back in the day was hopping because folks like to go to clubs and listen to music and dance and drink, and they were busting at the seams. And now we only have about 150 show up on a Friday or Saturday night out of 5,000. And so that value proposition really doesn't tell me that that needs to be a traditional club. I think what it needs to be is a student union. And we got the place and we turn it into a place where you can come and collaborate. You've got connection. You could do your Wi-Fi training. You could do um, other life skill type events that are in there and not necessarily turn it into essentially a bar, a bar and a dance club. That's what we have. And it's one of our largest facilities on the base. Um, we need to offer more things for people in that age range. We've worked really hard going back and forth trying to introduce Top Golf. Our golf course closed many years ago due to an extensive drought in Texas, and so we're trying to introduce that. But because that's not in the menu of items that we have in our Air Force, it's been uh, a challenge to get this um, project pushed because it's different. But I'm like, our environment is different. So I think as an installation commander, what you need to do is you need to look at the demographic that you're supporting and you have to provide base services to support that demographic. Whereas I did not need to put a student union at, at Robbins Air Force Base 
or necessarily at Top Golf because I had a golf course there in a different demographic, you know, a couple hundred airmen at, at Robbins where I have 5,000 airmen of a different life experience and interest. And how do you know, you got to keep people connected, not only in the classroom, but also what are you doing to make their experience in the Air Force? We talk about being a family and about being a community, and I think we need to shape our installations to meet the unique mission needs that we have, whether at tech school or whatever other missions out there. And I think that's the responsibility of an installation commander is to assess that, gather the feedback, and not from a guy like me deciding what a 17 to 20-some year, year old airman likes to do, but with from them, and then partner with your community, and then really uh, speak to your chain of command about how we're going to shape this installation for the mission that we have. I don't want anyone ever saying that it uh, it Shepherd sucked, you know, uh, or uh, that I didn't. I just couldn't wait to get out of Shepherd. That just breaks my heart if I would ever hear that because I think we owe them better. I want that to be their first best experience in the Air Force. So that's the standard that they now expect when they go to whatever operational assignment they have. I think we have a long way to go on that, uh, and we, we, you know, infrastructure improvements are challenging based on the age of. Um, what we have on our bases, but I think we can think creatively, and I think what we need to do is certainly leverage our community partners that are very eager all the time to support what we do, and we have to find those public-private partnerships uh, to ensure that, that we find a way to make it work for the environment that we're in. And I think that really lies on the shoulders of the installation commander, because you're the voice of the base, and you're the connection to the community. We'll have to get you back on the show to talk about the intricacies and dynamics of uh that <laughs> across the, yes. across your career <laughs> well you know last question uh what's the best part about being in the air force so i get asked this a lot especially you know every week my command chief and i get to talk to you know the almost 300 airmen that graduate bmt and come to shepherd and so we get asked that a lot like why did you stay in you know why didn't you go do something else and my chief's been in 25 years. He's about to retire this summer, and I've been in 28. So we've had a very similar timeline of experience, even though we've had different assignments. But when we talk about it, not only amongst ourselves, but our other group commanders and chiefs that are on the base, it goes back to an answer that I think many people give uh, when asked this question. It's about the people. There is a sense of camaraderie and connection that I think we have within the military, and especially within the Air Force, that is unique to what is in the private sector. Uh, I think if you don't show up to work in the private sector, they may be curious, but more curious about why you're not at work doing your job than what's going on in his or her life that's preventing them to, to be present, whether physically or emotionally, uh, in their job. And I think we do a really good job of that, and I think over time people realize that. And as I talk to friends that have separated or retired, that's the one thing they miss. They miss the people and the connection and the camaraderie uh, that they have out there. I think that is our secret sauce in the military. But it's a thing that we have to work at constantly. We cannot ever assume um, that that's what it is and that it's always going to be there. Uh, the analogy I give uh, when we talk about, you know, always winning for the past 76 years and what are we going to do today is I think back going to my high school reunion um, several years ago and the high school quarterback shows up. And, and our high school quarterback was, a, you know, he, he – through the winning pass to win our state championship, and it hadn't been done in decades. So he was reveled as a hero uh, for that time. And so 20-plus years later, he comes back, and, of course, everyone's reliving that great game and the feeling they have of winning. Uh, but then the, the question gets asked, so what are you doing now? 
and there's an awkward silence because he shows up with the letterman jacket he's very proud of what he did but what have you done now and so i think we can't just we should be proud of what we've done by constantly being you know uh, you know a tremendous joint partner and 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 providing solutions that win uh, for our nation but we can't rest on our laurels and so i think we constantly have to think whether it's about the people that we inspire to join or the mission sets that we're given is just because we won yesterday and just because we got everyone recruited the way we wanted it does not it is not a given uh, for today so we have to constantly be uh, aware of how the world is changing and that we have to be willing to change with it because if not someone else will change more than we will and find a way uh, you know to possibly uh, defeat us and I I think we'll we have the capacity to win we just have to have the willingness to change and take that risk that takes us to the next level before we get to a point that we before we have to do it so we do do it knowing we need to do it before it gets to a point of crisis Brigadier General Drew thanks for joining me on the show thank you very much this was great thanks for the opportunity Thank you so much for listening to the Tesseract Podcast. This show is how I started to learn about enterprise-level strategy and the innovation ecosystem within the Air Force, and I hope we passed along some learning to you with this episode. If you'd like to engage with our team, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.